We live in a world of false could be the false Christ of Islam, called Isa, just another prophet, but less eminent than the preeminent prophet, Muhammad. There's a false Christ of Mormonism, who's the brother of Satan, and only deity, because God gave it to him. Some Buddhists try to appropriate Jesus into their philosophy by cherry-picking and reinterpreting various passages of Scripture, and labeling him what they call a bodhisattva, someone who's to help people become enlightened uh, before becoming one with the Dharma. They see Jesus as merely being a good teacher of ethics or morals, nothing more. And of course, we have the false Christ of the prosperity gospel, who promises you health and wealth if you just give the right amount of money to the man or woman on the television. And those are just the religious false Christs. We're bombarded by the therapeutic false Christs who call you to be a good person and follow the golden rule in order to go to a nebulous heaven with no pearly gate, no hell below. There's also what's called the historical Jesus, who's only supposed to be found in historical records that aren't the Bible, the, the most substitute book in the world. I even took classes in college, ironically called religion classes, on this very historical Jesus taught by professors who hated the true Jesus. So how do we distinguish the true Jesus Christ from the false Christs of the world? We do this by knowing Christ. And how do we know Christ? We can observe the glory of the Trinitarian God as declared in the creation that bears his mark. We can hear the testimonies of his faithfulness and goodness as told by our brothers and sisters. But the central way that we know Christ, understand his glorious attributes, see his work, and are called to faith in him is through his inspired word. So turn with me, if you would, to Colossians 1. We'll actually be starting in verse 1 and reading through verses 21, uh, though our focus today will be verses 15 through 20. Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, 
the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you uh, open our ears this morning, open our eyes to see and hear your word to us as you've delivered it in the pages of Scripture, and I pray that you would soften our hearts that as we meditate for a while on the glories of Jesus that we will be uh, cut to the heart and and be renewed and refreshed uh, as only you can do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So in the verses running up to our text today, Paul is commending the Colossian Christians for their faith in Christ and in their love for the saints. They have truly believed the gospel, the power of God to salvation, For everyone who believes, the fruits have been witnessed, the gospel's power is increasing throughout the world, and the report of it all has come to Paul. This leads to Paul continuing in prayer for them, as he states, and it's a specific prayer. Paul's praying for them to grow and to be filled, that's in verse 9, filled with knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But that spiritual wisdom and understanding doesn't stand alone as if it were merely an academic thing. It's for the purpose of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's in verse 10. He prays that they may be strengthened with all power according to God's might. He's praying that they be gifted with a gift that produces other gifts. We might call that grace upon grace. Verse 13 is going to walk us into our our main text today. Paul's taken plenty of time in the previous verses to describe his love for these saints, to detail the subject and aims of his prayers for them, and now he's going to delineate, to to mark out, to sketch the character and work of the Savior who has secured all of this for his people. It's not merely the Savior of the Colossians, or of Paul and Timothy alone, but the Savior of all whom he calls to himself throughout the generations. So we must begin with the Father in verse 12, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit undertook the covenant of redemption, the plan before time that the Son would purchase a people for his own possession by living a sinless life, being the perfect and final sacrifice for sins, and rising for the justification of that people. In this, he qualified a people who never would have qualified to stand before him as children in their own merits but sharing in the inheritance of the saints, being made saints in Christ. Verse 13 declares that the saints have been removed 
freed, transferred from the domain of darkness and into the light, into the kingdom of his son, that's in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption in Christ. That's a key word. There is no Christian life without redemption from sin. There was a price to be paid to be transferred from that kingdom of darkness. It's not a price paid to the devil as a ransom, but to God to satisfy the, right, the Father's righteous judgment that cannot look upon unpunished sin. So our sins are forgiven because they've already been paid by someone, someone with a, a capital S, the capital S, Son. Those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. So in him we are reclaimed to our creator. He saved us and he welcomed us into the family of God. He's recovered the wayward sheep. He exchanged our sins for the righteousness of Christ. He's put our sins on him, and he's given us a righteousness that's outside of us, that only can come from Christ. And what's the point of all this? We're to give thanks to the Father for this amazing work. Well, how can we give thanks for this if we don't grasp who the Son is and what he's done to accomplish and apply this redemption to us? Who is this Christ by whom all these things have come to be? He's shown to us in our text today in four statements that begin with he is, followed by the effects of that statement for us. This text can be broken in two halves, uh, which is why it's been titled the king of creation and redemption, with one statement being the cornerstone that, that holds the entire structure together. So first, the first he is statement in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is such a radical statement because idolatry has been the rule of history, not the exception. You could essentially mark the identity of a people for most of human history by the gods that they say they worship, by the way that their idols appear. We might think of the, the idol of Dagon, who had a conspicuous image, uh, which lost its useless head and hands when the Philistines brought the stolen Ark of the Covenant into their pagan temple. The goddess Asherah was known for poles, as we've seen in the New Testament. We also know that from Paul's ministry that the Areopagus in Athens was covered in idols and shrines to various gods, and he cleverly used one without an image, which was dedicated to the unknown god, to preach the gospel to those that gathered around. Well, Christianity isn't a, re a religion of idols at all, and it shouldn't be. Christ is the image of God, and he lives. He's no dead image with eyes that can't see, hands that can't be used, and a mouth that can't speak. These false religions serve no God at all. The Buddhists prostrate themselves before an image of a portly man with big earlobes, a man who died and was buried and whose body decomposed. We worship the risen Christ, who sits now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and ever lives to make intercession for his people. Another facet of Jesus being the image of the invisible God interacts with his role as the last Adam. Mankind has been made in the image of God, as we read in Scripture, but it has been marred by original sin committed by Adam and passed down through every successive generation. Jesus, who is God, 
comes forward as the image of the invisible God by carrying the image of God, the imago Dei in which we are created, as a human man. And in doing so, he fully redeems that image that we in our sins had corrupted. He, as the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh, and his glory, the same glory as the Father and the Holy Spirit, was made beholdable, was made seeable. The invisibility of Yahweh is taught to us in Exodus 33, verses 18 through 23. In that passage, Yahweh tells Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And yet, as we recall that passage, Yahweh mercifully granted Moses' earnest request to behold his glory, hiding him in the rock and covering Moses with his hand and letting him see his glory as it was going past him. And at the end of Exodus 34, when Moses comes down from Sinai with with the tablets, his face shone because he'd been with God. Now, we've already sung a little bit of this truth this morning, immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. That same glory, that same great name is Christ's glory and name, and he was made visible, born in the flesh. He put the true and living God forward as a knowable human face. The invisible was made visible, tangible, imminent, uh, relational. It's the essence of what John's communicating in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, meaning Christ, has made him known. Jesus literally did become an image, a person you could see, you could speak to, uh, and touch, all for the purposes of making the Father known. He said on multiple occasions in the gospel accounts that it was his will to do the will of the Father. This imaging, this being the image of the invisible God, was one of the very important aspects of the will of the Father. The fulfillment of that promise that we read every Christmas, the promise of God with us. So now don't be confused as we continue in this verse by this firstborn of all creation phrase. Uh, It's been one that's been misused so many times to support all sorts of uh, dastardly theological ideas, but we're not to believe that there was a time in which the Son didn't exist and then was born. We're speaking here of preeminence. In fact, that's uh, that's why that's in the the section heading in your Bible, most likely. Um, There wasn't a time before he was born. He's preeminent. He has priority. He has rank. This is about order of placement before all others in terms of his authority and his blessedness. Psalm 89, 26-29, I think helps us get our minds around this difficult concept of this firstborn who had no beginning. The passage is speaking of the promised Davidic king, and it says, He shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Who else could have that title but Christ? My steadfast love will keep him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. 
the firstborn had always had a, a, a high place in Jewish families, perhaps even the highest. They were dedicated to God and were given immense responsibility. Now, some heretics, namely the Arians uh, in history, have twisted this verse as the primary text for their belief that Jesus was not eternal, but rather a created being, just like any other man or woman would be. Instead, Paul is using this word firstborn, uh, not as a description of Jesus' origin, as if he had one, but instead as a metaphor for his exalted status over all creation. For he himself would be born uh, into that same creation according to the flesh when the fullness of time had come. Jesus perfectly fulfills this firstborn role, but in an eternal sense, not merely a temporal one like any other eldest children that may be in the room today. He steps into history, into his own creation, as the image of God, the Father's only approved representative of divinity, and carries out every objective that he was sent for, all the way to the cross, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So we continue to verse 16. As the perfect image of the invisible God functioning as the perfect and only begotten Son, he administrates the very action of creation. So it says, for by him all things were created. All things, that's all things. This beautiful world that we live in, all created through him and for him. The invisible realm where the angels go back and forth doing Yahweh's bidding and and opposing Satan's demons, all created through him and for him. Every earthly kingdom, government, parliament, commonwealth, past, present, and future, all created through him and for him. Thrones, dominions, rulers themselves, authorities, and these are referring to the spiritual realm even more than the physical, all were created through him and for him. He's the creator of it all, sustainer of it all, and the Lord of it all. It was not the result of some big bang out of nowhere. Jeremiah 10, verses 11 and 12 says, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. It wasn't a series of accidents that brought things into being. Uh, Things coming out of nothing, out of their own nothing volition. The power, wisdom, and discretion of Jesus went into every facet of creation. I heard a video this week of a man explaining the imagery from the Webb telescope to his wife uh, within the video. And he made a comment that made me chuckle just a little bit. I want to quote it here for you. He He said in this video, these smears, talking about parts of the image that look smeared or or dragged across uh, in in an unnatural-looking way. He said, these smears are a lens into a time long, long ago, longer than we actually think. He actually mentioned tens of billions of years, but take that with a grain of salt or two. Back to the creation of the universe, he says. So this picture, though it looks like a bunch of little dots, could be telling the story of creation of the universe, and we might just be seeing parts of the creation of the universe because of the way this super-dense galaxy has bent space and time. 
I'm sure while many of us who've seen those images uh, from the telescope might identify with his enthusiasm, it was very exciting uh, to see, I would correct a little bit of what he says. The dots in the image, whether they're entire galaxies or individual stars or a, a gas giant planet, they all declare the glory of God, as Psalm 19 says. They testify that we live in a created universe, but the story of that creation is here on these pages, not in our imagination or our own calculations. We don't need a telescope to tell us the story of the creation of the universe. We have the inspired word of God, and it tells us, it's telling us this morning, that Jesus made it all. No, instead we confess the first verses of John's gospel account. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There is no life outside of Christ. In him is life alone. Mankind may prefer to walk in darkness, and we see this around us all the time, but they are suffering. They're not living, not living abundantly. Instead, those of us who called on Christ out of the darkness of our sins cried out to him in repentance for those sins, those offenses against him, and pleading for mercy before the holy God. We have seen a great light. We can know with certainty that everything Paul has mentioned in the opening verses of this chapter apply to us. That's why we ascribe to Christ all praise and glory and honor and none for us. We are nothing. Everything we have is a gift from our Creator's hand. We have nothing good apart from Him. He made it all, and He gives it with grace. As Romans 11.36 says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. So this leads us to our second He is statement in verse 17. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus is eternally existent, and He's the creator of all there is, so it makes sense that He is before all things, not just in the sense of His pre-existence and eternality, but in priority and rank. Again, that's consistent with that firstborn of all creation status. And because he creates, he sustains. He set the world spinning, and he keeps it spinning. He fills the earth with all sorts of life, including human life, and he supports all of it. Now, going back to outer space for a second, did you know the earth is in the exact right position for life to flourish on it? If we were any closer to the sun, the planet would be scorched. If we were further away, it would freeze. Even the, the kind of wonky orbit of the earth, which isn't a perfect circle around the sun, doesn't put us at risk for either of those options. The distance of the earth from the sun is literally called by scientists the habitable zone because it's the exact amount of separation needed to retain liquid water and yet also stay warm enough for life to thrive. This isn't happenstance. It's not an accident. It's handiwork. This is Jesus' handiwork, and it's marvelous in our eyes. 
Not only does he hold all things together at the macro level, he holds all things together at the micro level. It's his air that we're breathing when we breathe, and we use the lungs that he gave us to breathe that air. Do you know scientists still haven't figured out what holds an atom together? They've put together all sorts of lovely theories and studies that are very interesting, uh, but don't provide any answers. But we have the answer right here. Jesus holds it all together, from the atom all the way up to everything else. He's totally sovereign. He's totally capable. There's no sweat on his upper lip as he upholds the universe by the word of his power. From the most gigantic of the galaxies, at the far reaches of space, to keeping the individual organs of our body in its proper place, each and every one of them. In fact, the only reason that there's any order in the world whatsoever and not complete and utter chaos is because Jesus is very God, a very God, eternal and mighty, the true and the living God. The preacher to the Hebrews sums up this message of the king of creation so well in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir, notice that preeminent sonship language, the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There are no maverick molecules in the universe, as R.C. Sproul famously said, one of my favorite quotes of his. The eternal Son of God, who is the only authorized representative of God to mankind, created and sustains all of his creation, the entire cosmos, for his glory. We come to our third he is statement in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. This is that statement that is the cornerstone that holds both sides of this text together. The king of creation and the king of redemption. He is the head of the body, the church. Paul's a master of metaphorical language, taking the monumental truths of God and zeroing in to make them understand He's used body-related metaphors elsewhere in his letters, like in Ephesians, and also as we've been hearing in 1 Corinthians. Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23 says, And he, the Father, put all things under his feet, meaning Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Think about how gracious that truth is, The same Jesus, who is the heir of all things, the glorified creator, is the head of a body made up of sinners like us. He has chosen to be joined to his people the way that a head is joined to the body. Brain in it operates the whole. Only Christ has the right and the authority as head of the church. No mere man in a pointy hat who rides around in a Kia soul has the right to call himself the head of the church. Churches aren't their own head, and they are horribly mistaken when they officially or unofficially put a man as head of the church. A great example of this would be any one of the uh, megachurches out there with a 
cult of personality around their vision-casting leader. The church looks to Christ as her head, guided by his word, and is helped and ministered to by under-shepherds, as he has appointed and called for that purpose. The church is a people that Christ has purchased for his own possession, redeemed with his precious blood, and reconciled for his glory. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by spirit and the word, as we've just sung. He nourishes and he guides us. And because the body can go nowhere and do nothing without the head, he joins us to one another in fellowship as we are connected to him as our head. Just as he created the entire universe for his glory, he has created the body of the church for his glory. Just as he keeps every atom stable, so he has kept the church, and he will keep the church. Just as he gives life and breath and everything to all the creatures of the world, so he gives new life and forgiveness of sins to his redeemed people in the church. We who have believed in Christ have been transferred to Christ's kingdom out of the kingdom of darkness, as 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's nothing short of a confluence of miracle upon miracle that we sit here this morning and exist as a congregation. And it's certainly no credit to us for keeping this body together. There's no need to inject our own ideas or strategies in the church to keep, to keep Christ's body afloat as if the world could somehow kill this body. Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not, never, ever prevail against the church. Church innovations throughout history have damaged the church in different ways, but Jesus sustains the health of his body because he is the head. And he has called the church to reformation over the years, not by adding elements to conform with the culture and its various whims, but by returning to the text of Scripture and organizing our congregations according to the word, the body always following the true head. Him we, pro we proclaim not only gathering for worship on the Lord's Day here, but it is the pattern of our entire lives as members of his body. We give glory to our head in all things. So now let's look at this king of redemption. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. I think this statement is a very nice parallel with the earlier statement about including the use of the word firstborn again, just like in verse 15. We know that the word was with God and was God. He's in the beginning with God. We know he is the heir of all things. But now we see another aspect of his preeminence. He's the firstborn from the dead. In other words, he is the beginning of the new beginning. The firstborn from the dead is the king of the new birth, the king of redemption. You could almost think of it as the king of creation and the king of re-creation. We are dead in sins and trespasses and must be born again, as Jesus says in John 3. We can only be born again because Jesus died and was raised for our justification. 
Others in Scripture have been raised from death to life. Think of Lazarus or the son of the widow of Nain or even Eutychus, who's the boy that fell from the window while Paul was preaching. All these people had to die a second time. But instead, Jesus died and was raised to life eternally, never to die again. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he gives life to others. His resurrection wasn't just for him, it was also for us. He laid down his life, and he took it up again, and is shown in full to be preeminent over all things, and that includes even death. John Calvin excellently describes the weightiness of this truth in his commentary on this passage, and I'd like to read a passage of it. John Calvin writes, He's the beginning because he's the firstborn from the dead. For in the resurrection there is a restoration of all things. And in this manner, the commencement of the second and new creation, for the former had fallen to pieces in the ruin of the first man, meaning Adam. As then, Christ in rising again had made a commencement of the kingdom of God. He is on good grounds called the beginning. For then do we truly begin to have a being in the sight of God when we are renewed so as to be new creatures. He's called the first begotten from the dead, not merely because he was the first that rose again, but because he has also restored life to others, as he is elsewhere called the first fruits of those that rise again. Let's go on to verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. There is no one else. No one but Jesus had the Holy Spirit descend on him as a dove and the voice of the Eternal Father say, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The same fullness of God within Christ is the fullness that we receive grace upon grace from. There is no partiality in Jesus whatsoever. He is truly God and truly man. He has all fullness of divinity. And because... He has all the fullness of God. Being the image of the invisible God, we shouldn't be afraid that we'll lack anything we need. His fullness is sufficient for our every need. Our greatest, gift, our greatest need being the redemption from our sins, which we see in the final phrases of this passage, reconciliation by the blood of his cross. There are no bloodless sacrifices, According to Scripture, sins must be paid with blood. From the first animal sacrifice in the Garden of Eden to, to clothe sinful Adam and Eve, right up until the death of Christ on the cross, blood sacrifice was the prescribed way for sinners to be reconciled to God. But Jesus, who is the firstborn of creation, took on that role as the final sacrifice for sins. The creator of men and women was the sacrificial lamb to cleanse men and women. The one who spoke the universe into existence cried out in agony on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The righteous one died in the stead of the unrighteous. The son of God dying for his sworn enemies died to make sinners clean, to bring strangers home, to redeem people from the slavery of sin. All of this reconciliation of God and man is accomplished exclusively in the blood of Christ, crucified for you. It's impossible to know true peace outside of Christ, 
Not just peace as in the absence of conflict, but the kind of peace that the Hebrew word shalom would have communicated to Jewish listeners. Total peace, harmony with God and man. We can only know peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. That very harmony is what we're taught to expect in its fullest sense at his second coming, when sin is no more and every tear is wiped away. And Yahweh will imminently dwell with his people for eternity. You can wish for peace on your own terms, but without the redemption that comes through Christ alone, we are mired in war. War against God, war against each other. And this word reconcile is such a significant word. There is a lot of talk of reconciliation in our world right now, and that talk rings so hollow in comparison with the work of Christ for us. People talk about political solutions to bring people together or, or fiscal solutions to bring down various walls between people groups. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is never mentioned in any of these discussions. But there has been no better agent for the reconciliation of people to one another than the saving gospel of the power of God. And that's because we can only be at peace with each other when we found peace with God in the blood of Jesus' cross. The work of Christ on the cross is the only way for sinful humanity to be reconciled to the true and living God. It's the power for what's called the great exchange, that the punishment for our sin is placed on him and the reward for his righteousness is placed on us. That's the truth of double imputation, that the sin of the wicked is carried by the righteous so that righteousness can be credited to the now formerly the forgiven wicked. No false Christ will ever deliver that or even promise it. The false Christ whose false gospels are you are enough or love is love or whatever secular platitude that we hear are just that, false Christs. The true Christ is the image of the invisible God, the official and authorized representative of God. All the fullness of deity dwells in him, and all things were created by him and for his glory. And he has labored to build and lead a body of believers, bleeding and dying and rising again for them, a body of which he alone is the head. And to return once more to Paul's introduction to this letter, the point of it all is thankfulness to the Father for all the gifts that we receive from Christ. Thankfulness for the knowledge of Christ himself. For those of us who have known the true Christ and the power of salvation he accomplished, our hearts should be provoked to thanksgiving to our triune God for the measureless grace that's been richly poured out on us. And for those of us who haven't yet repented and believed in Christ, I pray that your eyes will be open to the glory of your creator, your ears open to his word, and that he will change the heart of stone to a heart of flesh, and that you would repent of your sins and enjoy your Savior forever. And if that's true for you, then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us, uh, the glorious truths that are contained in there, and the time that we spend looking into your word, uh, we are refreshed, uh, we are informed. Uh, but Lord, don't let us simply learn about Christ and not apply what we know of our Savior. Help us to seek him and to seek his righteousness, to earnestly desire 
a, a true relationship, a, a covenant connection with our Creator and our Redeemer. Lord, I thank you for our time of worship today, and I pray that as we continue, that you will restore and, and feed our faith as only you can. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.